Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So I wanted to um, continue with um, this uh, three-week exploration into uh, some different suttas of uh, the Buddha's teaching. Sutta, in Pali the word is sutta, in Sanskrit it's sutra, same thing, discourse. And uh, as I mentioned last week, there are um, many, many discourses of the Buddhas that were preserved uh, after he passed. Um, And they were preserved orally for the first uh, several hundred years. And I mentioned last week that there was a council after the Buddha died, about two months after the Buddha died, as it's said. And uh, they wanted to preserve his teachings. And they had um, Ananda, who was his attendant, uh, who was with him for the last 25 years of of the 45 years of his teaching, um, come at, with a special assignment. Uh, Ananda, who was with him all of those years, right by his side, uh, fortunately for us, uh, supposedly had perfect recall. So um, this is uh, the discourses as they uh, were preserved and given orally, an oral tradition. And there's a number of different collections. Maybe I'll just mention this for a moment before I get into the one we're doing tonight. There are a number of different collections uh, that are called uh, different ones. They're all with the word Nikaya or um, uh, collection. There's the Majima Nikaya, which is the middle length discourses, not too long, not too short. Uh, that one has 152 discourses that are preserved. There's the Digha Nikaya, D-I-G-H-A, which are the long discourses. And there's, uh, tw- I think, 26 of those uh, in the Digha Nikaya. There's the um, Samyutta Nikaya, which are the connected, it's called the connected body of uh, teachings, of connected discourses. There's the Anguttara Nikaya, which are the numerical discourses. Um, lots of different ones that have been preserved. And the one I wanted to share with uh, tonight, last week, I, for those who weren't here, I shared the second discourse of the Buddha's teachings uh, that he gave after his enlightenment uh, the uh, Anatta Lakana Sutta, the discourse on understanding the concept of not self. This one uh, comes from the um, Anguttara Nikaya, and it's the the discourse uh, that's called the refinement of mind. And uh, what I'll do, it's not a, it's not a long, at least the the part that I'm reading, the essence of it is not very long. Uh, So I'll read you the discourse and then we'll explore it together. Just see 
how it lands. Okay. And this is the Buddha speaking. It said, Herein is a simile for the refinement of mind. There are, my friends, gross impurities in gold, such as earth and sand, gravel and grit. Now the skilled goldsmith first pours the gold into a trough and washes, rinses, and cleans it thoroughly. When the goldsmith has done this, there still remain moderate impurities in the gold, such as fine grit and coarse sand. Then the goldsmith rinses and cleans it again. When the goldsmith has done this, there still remain minute impurities in the gold, such as fine sand and dust. Now the goldsmith repeats the washing, and thereafter only the gold dust remains. The goldsmith now pours the gold into the melting pot and smelts it, melts it together. But the goldsmith does not yet take it out from the vessel as the dross has not yet been entirely removed. And the gold is not yet quite pliant, workable, and bright. It is still brittle and does not yet lend itself to molding. But a time comes when the goldsmith repeats the melting so that the flaws are entirely removed. The gold is now quite pliant, workable, and bright, and it lends itself easily to molding. Whatever ornament the goldsmith now wishes to make of it, be it a crown, earrings, a necklace, or a golden chain, the gold can now be used for that purpose. Similarly, in the case of a practitioner devoted to practice, there may be such gross impurities as unskillful conduct in deeds, words, and thoughts. Such conduct, the follower of the way, little by little gives up, puts away, lets go, and relinquishes. When one has abandoned these, there may still remain such impurities of a moderate degree, such as lustful, angry, and violent thoughts still remaining. Such thoughts, the follower of the way, little by little, gives up, puts away, lets go, and relinquishes. When one has abandoned these, there may still remain such subtle impurities as clinging with attachment to relatives, to nation, or to one's reputation. When one has 
abandon these, there may still remain grasping to special states of meditation. Getting more and more essency here. Give up the whole world, but oh, that sweet sitting is so good. Thus concentration is not yet properly calmed or refined. It has not yet attained to full tranquility, nor has it achieved mental unification. But there comes a time when the practitioner's mind gains firmness within, settles down, becomes unified and concentrated. With such a concentration, the practitioner is able to direct the mind to the states of higher insight and eventually full awakening. How's it sound? (laughs) As you were hearing that, were you putting yourself, where do I fit in this list? Mm, Still got a little work to do. Mm -hmm. But it's, I think, really um, useful to see this is a journey. This is a process. And it requires uh, an ongoing commitment and an ongoing understanding that as long as you're facing in the right direction and you have determination, motivation, sincerity, that's all you can do is be right where you are and take the next step and the next step and the next step. And if you see the final goal and it seems so far away and you think, oh, what's the point? You know, 20 lifetimes from now, maybe. Or, gosh, I've been doing this for six months already and I'm still the same mess that I was to begin with. You need to see the big picture. And I wanted to talk tonight a little bit in more detail about the big picture. And as I'm um, uh, talking, I'm I'm remembering uh, a line from Trungpa Rinpoche, who was this Um, iconoclastic, uh, um, uh, eccentric, wise uh, Tibetan master who was one of my first teachers. Um, He was very quotable and one of of the lines I remember from him, he said, uh, the spiritual path is fraught with perils and dangers. And so one should consider it carefully before embarking on it. But once started, it's best to finish it. And one reason why it's best to finish it, besides the fact that, oh yeah, why not go for the gold, <clears throat> literally, is, <and> that's, <clears throat> is that as you start to wake up more and more 
you start seeing more and more the ways that you were asleep. And this can be very humbling. So if you're caught in the middle and you're seeing, I've got so far to go, but I don't want to go back there. But here I am seeing all of these impurities. I'd better keep on going. I said, uh, again, I'm just thinking of the song, uh, I forget the, the lyrics exactly, clowns to the left of me, something, what is it, devils, what's to the right? Jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle. You don't want to be stuck in the middle, unless the middle is the middle path, that's a, that, that's a different kind of middle. So, this, this whole process, one way to think of this process, and I, I want to also just acknowledge that it doesn't necessarily go this way. There are uh, talks last week when I talked about the uh, Anatalakana Sutta. Uh, it was after, uh, it was the second Sutta given about a week after the first Sutta to his first five, to his five um, practitioner ascetic uh, cohorts. And on the first Sutta, somebody uh, reached the first stage of enlightenment. And on the second sutta, upon hearing it, they all become became fully enlightened. So there's the quick way too. <clears throat> and I wish the Buddha was around to give a, a talk. Uh, but it does happen. It happens from time to time that one has a very profound, deep awakening experience. However, even then, there is still a process of purification for most of us. There are some rare instances, like Ramana Maharshi, who at the age of 17 uh, had a profound encounter with death, and he, in that, awoke and he remained in that way for the whole rest of his life. Or um, Eckhart Tolle, uh, who I don't know him personally, but he seems like something has impacted him that has, has remained. For most of us, we experience, even if you've had a very profound understanding and experience, there is this notion, I've talked about it here before, uh, uh, called sudden awakening, gradual purification. Maybe I even mentioned it last week. Did I mention it last week? I don't know. Sudden awakening, gradual purification, where you see the light and your whole perspective and understanding of who you are and how it all is changes, but there's still habits of mind that had been practiced over a lifetime and there's still cleaning up to do. So even if you have a profound awakening experience, as I'm sure most of us know, very um, seemingly wise teachers who then do stupid things. 
It does happen from time to time. Um, so there's no guarantee. And in fact, you know, I'm just thinking of uh, the Dalai Lama saying, if you have a choice between um, a deep understanding of emptiness and a deep understanding of the law of karma, and you, can, you, you need to choose, go for karma. Because if you have a, a deep understanding of emptiness, but it's not a complete freedom, you can go ahead and do some very stupid things and get yourself in a lot of trouble. But if you keep on moving towards a direction of greater and greater purity, that that in itself will keep you leading on to the deepest kind of freedom. Mm. There's a, a line from Padmasambhava who is credited with bringing Buddhism from India to Tibet. Uh, and he says, um, I think it's Padmasambhava, yeah. He says, Though my, uh, though my understanding of the view is vast, though my understanding of emptiness, of the empty nature of it all, though my understanding of the view is vast, my uh, attention to the law of karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour, of sifted barley flour. So it's not enough to just say, oh, I got it. Okay, now I can go have a good time. There is that process of purification. And for most of us, short of having that awakening process, it's a bit of a longer journey. And I wanted to share with you a little bit of that. Uh, first, to, to just show um, this book to you. This is um, called... Uh, in Pali, the Visuddhimagga, or what's known as the Path of Purification. This was written by um, a, a, a really brilliant scholar and meditation master named uh, Buddhaghosa in uh, the 5th century uh, AD. And this Path of Purification, which in this edition is like 700 pages or so, um, has three parts. The first part is about the importance of developing virtue, the importance of developing, of cleaning up your act, basically. That that's the foundation. The second is the development of concentration. <clears throat> and the third section is the development of wisdom and insight. And in this very um, extensive, detailed uh, presentation of the path of purification, uh, goes into all different states of mind that can be cultivated in concentration for several hundred pages, and then going into the deeper understanding of uh, wisdom. In the Eightfold Path, I hope this isn't overloading you with too much information, but in the Eightfold Path, um, the, it, is, it is broken up into these three. 
Sila, Samadhi, and Panya, it's called. Sila being our actions in the world, right speech, action, and livelihood. Samadhi being the development in the meditation, cultivation of the, of the mind, um, right? Effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And panya, or wisdom, uh, being uh, the deepest kinds of understanding, wise thought, wise, wise understanding, and wise intention. So, <clears throat> and we, it's said that we enter this path even to be exposed to teachings. It's said that you have very good karma. It doesn't happen random. And also, it doesn't happen that even if somebody hears or reads about it, that they'll be really touched by it. Somebody can read you know, the, a, a collection of the Buddha's teachings and say, eh, I don't know, it seems kind of weird. You know? Somebody else can read it and say, oh, there's something here. Or you hear a Dharma talk, and maybe you're there with your friend, and one of you says, well, he's kind of boring, and the other says, oh my God, I think my life has changed. You know? So there's karma in not only being what you hear or what you're exposed to, but what really resonates for you and sinks in and says, mm, there's something that's calling me that I can't ignore. That in itself is comes out of very uh, good karma. Even the, in the Buddha's time, the Buddha was known as one of his names that I love. Is he was known as the teacher of those who could be taught. Not everybody got it. There, the Buddha would be giving this brilliant sermon that somebody, many got enlightened and others were shrugging their shoulders, oh, I don't know, or, or they tried to discredit him or they were jealous of him. So there's some karma in, in really understanding or having it, it move you. That's called uh, purity of conduct or, or, or um, our, which comes out of Supposedly, good karma comes out of generosity and, um, and living a life of integrity. Then you get to hear the teachings. And then the good circumstances that you have to practice is called purity of wisdom, where you get to actually cultivate. <clears throat> so now, looking at your own practice, some of you might be relatively new to practice, whether it's you know, a few months or a year or two. Some of you have been practicing for decades. <clears throat> Wherever you are, until you're fully awakened, there's more to do. And that doesn't have to be discouraging. I think, I, I forget if I mentioned this recently, I remembered, uh, I remember very well, uh, one uh, retreat, I had been sitting for about 
five years or so, and I'd done a couple of three-month retreats, lots of retreats. The Dharma was my whole life. I was completely hooked, uh, which was just, I, I had a lot of suffering, and I was very motivated. But for whatever reason, that's why I love to share this stuff. Uh, and I went into an interview in one of these, my second long retreat, and I said, I don't know what I've been doing up until now, but this, it's like I'm in Alice in Wonderland. It's like I'm in a whole new place that I'm seeing things that I never saw before. And Joseph, my teacher, he said, oh yeah, I know what that's like. I said, you do? He said, yeah, I get it every time I sit. And then he leaned forward and he said, and you know what? It's like we're at the tip of the iceberg. And he said it with this gleam in his eye. It's like we're at the tip of the iceberg. He was not saying, there is so much more to go. You know, God, it's so depressing how much more I have to go. He was saying, how exciting. Life keeps on revealing itself. We keep on opening to more and more depth of understanding and heartfulness and love. What else is there to do? I'll never forget that moment. And I still feel I'm at the tip of the iceberg. So if you feel, oh gosh, there's so much to do, just see it as an adventure. This is an ongoing exploration into reality. And when you think about the alternative... Are you going to cultivate cultivate more greed, hatred, and delusion? You know that 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 that's the choice here. Mm. Now, part of this is seeing that, uh, as I said, the more you wake up, the more you see, which is both good news and challenging news because the more you see the more you see the ways that you get lost the more you see the ways that you're still stuck in old habits the more you can easily unless you have some understanding can judge yourself for making the same mistakes even though you know better. This is a very, we've talked about this, I've talked about this many times. This is a very important part of the practice to see that that humbling experience is actually good news. As Pema Chodron says, a line that I've quoted many times, take the light that the awareness is seeing the dukkha. Take the light that there's awareness that sees, that is waking up to the suffering. And I wanted to read to you uh, one of my favorite passages from um, a book that changed my life that I've mentioned many times. This is Be Here Now, Remember Be Here Now by Ramdas, who is one of my two main teachers. 
And this is what he says. Where did I find it? I have to look in this. I have to look in the table of contents. I have this already. Oh, yeah. So this is what he says. <clears throat> Maybe I'll read to you in certain pieces, because uh, the whole thing is so beautiful. This is his teaching on the course of practice, the course of sadhana. Sadhana means practice. Doing practice can be as much of a trap as any other melodrama. It's useful to have some perspective about the path in order to keep yourself from getting too caught up in the stage in which you're working. These pointers may help. Each stage one can label must pass away. Even the labeling will ultimately pass. A person who says, I'm enlightened, probably isn't. And you can see if there's an I'm, I'm enlightened, and the whole idea is seeing through that sense of ego and self, it's a kind of uh, what? oxymoron, I'm enlightened. <clears throat> the initial euphoria that comes through the first awakening into even a little consciousness, except in a very few cases, will pass away leaving a sense of loss or feeling of falling out of grace or despair. The Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross deals with that state. Practice is a bit like a roller coaster. Each new height is usually followed by a new low. Understanding this makes it a bit easier to ride with both phases. And here's the passage that I quote many times, as you further purify yourself, your impurities will seem grosser and larger. Understand that it's not that you're getting more caught in the illusion, it's just that you're seeing it more clearly. The lions guarding the gates of the temples get fiercer as you proceed towards each inner temple. But of course, the light is brighter too. It all becomes intense because of, more intense because of the additional energy involved at each stage of practice. Mm -hmm. So, again, just want to underscore this. I'll stop here for a moment. You will keep on seeing the ways that you lose it. This is good news. If you didn't see it, you would be doomed to just keep on repeating and making those mistakes over and over. Now, I want to share with you uh, another favorite passage that I have, uh, that I share, uh, that probably a number of you have heard called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters by Portia Nelson that describes this waking up process. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes me forever to find a way out. 
Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. That's this process of purification. And in chapter three, where she says, my eyes are open, I know where I am. That's waking up, being more present. And when she says, it is my fault, not to beat yourself up, but to see, oh, this is what's happening because of my perceptions, my actions. I have a choice here. This is not about what's happening out there, it's what's happening in here. That's where you really are starting to face in the right direction. So, not to get discouraged in this process. Then he says this, at first you think of your practice as a limited part of your life. In time you come to realize that everything you do is part of your practice. And this is an interesting shift that happens, and maybe some of you have experienced this uh, in your own spiritual practice, meditation practice. At first, how can I squeeze my meditation into my life? You know, oh, what can I, what can I do? You know, oh, I want to get more of this spiritual stuff. How can I fit it in here? But when it becomes the center of your life, then everything you do fits into that. And it's not so much, oh, how can I become more mindful for a few minutes a day? It's, oh, I want to wake up. I want to grow and understand And so everything that happens to you is held in the context of waking up, whether it's somebody dying who's close to you or some diagnosis that you uh, encounter or some loss or some wrinkles starting to happen in your skin that weren't there before or... Life happens, whether it's good, bad, beautiful, ugly. You're learning, like Ramda says, to ride the roller coaster instead of trying to get to some magical destination that says, ah, finally made it. And when you see your life in that context, then whatever is happening is part of your awakening. A Journey of Awakening, as one of Ram Dass's books uh, was titled. Mm. Again, one of the traps along the way, 
is called the sattvic trap, the trap of purity. You'll be doing everything just as you should and get caught in how pure you are. In India, it's called the golden chain. It's not a chain of iron, but it's still a chain. You'll finally have to give up even your idea of purity if you expect to do it all in this lifetime. Hmm. You ever get that feeling? Hey, my spiritual life is really pretty good right now. I'm more spiritual than they are. Oh, if they only they had it together, like me. Um, It's a tricky one. There can be this, and maybe it's not as obvious as that, but it takes the form of self-righteousness. Have you ever had a moment of self-righteousness? Oh, there's an honest person there. And it's humbling, you know. When you see somebody else like that, it's, hmm. But when we get so caught up and attached to our ideas and views, I'm right, we forget that everybody has their own reality. Now, it's good to live in accordance, aligned with values that don't cause harm. But it's the self-righteousness, that extra piece that says, I'm better. I'm more evolved. Um, That really gets in the way. The trap of purity that Ramdas is talking about. And that's where when you get humbled on this journey and you feel like you're back to square one, there's a value in that because being humbled, you see your humanity, you see your humanness, and it kind of knocks you off the pedal of that self-righteousness. It's, oh, yeah, what was I thinking having it all together? And for me, I've mentioned this a number of times, humility is one of the one of the qualities I most value, and I think most of us do, because if, when it's true humility, then yourself is not getting in the way. Actually, there's this, this uh, wonderful uh, um, teacher, Wei Wu Wei, who's uh, British, but he'd, he took the name Wei Wu Wei, who would have these pithy see, uh, sayings, and he has this one saying, um, True humility is the absence of anyone to be proud. That's real humility. That's different than that false humility. Oh yes, I'm a humble person. I hope you see how humble I am. But when there's, uh, there's true humility and seeing, oh, I'm human, and then actually at some point developing into the, the true humility that sees, oh, how, how could I take credit for this expression of life that's me? Look at me. That's what the Buddha warned against as the essence of the problem. Mm-hmm. 
Early in the journey, you wonder how long it will take and whether you will make it in this lifetime. But later you see that where you're going is here and you arrive now. So you stop asking. Now this is a very important point. I'm so glad I, you know, when I was putting this talk together and, uh, or just reading the sutta, I wanted to talk about purification and just like mm, a half hour before I left, uh, I said, oh, this is it right here. So I love this teaching from Be Here Now. What he says is so important. We can have this idea that I'm here and somehow I will arrive at some magical destination that's far away from me. You know, whether it's in time or space or lifetimes, eventually I might get there. But another way of thinking of it is no matter where you are when you wake up, I can guarantee you two things. It will be here, wherever you happen to be. It can't be any place else. And it will be now, not in the future. So what we're doing is learning to open up more and more to where we are right now. But we're opening with new perspective. It's like there's this, this mandala that, or flower that keeps on opening, but you're opening to this moment. How could awakening happen any other moment than the now or any other place than here? So it's not about getting somewhere out there. It's about more and more settling in and connecting with your life right now. That's why mindfulness is really the key because it's all about being here now, like the book says. And that creates the conditions for the fullest kind of awakening. At first you try, you, but later on you just do your... Pre- and he says, oh, it's in bold. At first you try really hard. Later you just do your practice because what else is there to do? holding your life in that context. Mm. At certain stages, you'll take your practice very seriously. As many know, that's how I ended up writing Awakening Joy, because I took my practice very seriously and lost my joy. Later, you'll see the wisdom of the statement of Jesus that to seek the Lord, people need not disfigure their faces in contortions and trying hard. Cosmic humor, especially about your own predicament, is an important part of this journey. Laughing at yourself. This is... Then you are in on the joke and you don't take yourself quite so seriously. Having a sense of humor, as I've said many times, instead of, oh gosh, look at my mind, wow, look at the mind do its thing and not taking it personally makes all the difference in the world. And then 
He says, at some stages you'll experience a plateau as if everything has stopped. This is a hard point in the journey. Know that once the process has started, it doesn't stop. It only appears to stop from where you're looking. Just keep going. It doesn't really matter whether you think it's happening or not. In fact, the thought, it's happening, is just another obstacle. Mm. And getting back to the discourse, remember, a little at a time, a little at a time, first the, the, the impurities and then the dust and then the dross and then the attachment to, um, uh, to thoughts and states of mind, a little at a time. And even when it seems like it's stopped, as long as you keep on facing in the right direction, mindfulness keeps on supporting this purification. Your mindfulness and your intention to wake up, that's the key. You may have expected that enlightenment would come zap, instantaneous and permanent. This is unlikely. After the first aha experience, the unfolding is gradual and almost indiscernible. It can be thought of as the thinning of a layer of clouds until only the most transparent veil remains. That's the dross and the dust. And then then it becomes pliable. And now... Here's a piece about retreats and going in and out in practice. There is, in addition to the up and down cycle, an in and out cycle. That is, there are stages at which you feel pulled into inner work and all you seek is a quiet place to meditate and to get on with it. And if you've been done some retreats, and have somehow been hooked and you're in the middle of a process that says, oh, when's my next retreat? Now that's different than saying, I've got to get to my next retreat because life out here is just awful and just give me a break. It's more, I've touched something inside that I can't ignore. And you are living in that inner world as well as the outer world. And it's interesting, when you do a retreat after you've been touched that way, the next time you do a retreat, it's like you pick up where you left off. And there is a journey, an inward journey. Anyway, he says, there are stages at which you feel pulled into inner work and all you seek is a quiet place to meditate and to get on with it. Then there are times when you turn outward and seek to be involved in the marketplace, living your daily life and getting on with your life. Both of these parts of the cycle are a part of one's practice. For what happens to you in the marketplace helps in your meditation, and what happens to you in meditation helps you to participate in the marketplace without attachment. This is really important. It's not that one is better than the other. They inform each other. It's not only about going from retreat to retreat. Unless 
you are taking on robes and living uh, the holy life. There is going deep and then coming out and sharing and engaging and living your life. And one keeps the, keeps the other uh, growing. You keep on growing, going in and out. And here's the final passage. What is happening to you in this journey is nothing less than death and rebirth. What is dying is the entire way in which you understood who you are and how it all is. What is being reborn is the child of the Spirit for whom all things are new. This process of attending an ego that is dying at the same time as you're going through a birth process is awesome. Be gentle and honor that which is dying as well as that which is being born. So the process of purification, little by little, and I invite you to just look back in your own, your own life. Maybe go inside for a moment and then we'll open it up for some conversation. If you've been doing this for a, a while, have you noticed any ways that you're a bit more aware or self-aware? Any kind of intentions or ways that there's some purification that has happened, if not in your outward behavior, in what's important to you? Even to just see a little bit that would make you come here on a Thursday night and meditate and say, this is a good thing for me to do. There's something that's touched you. And it's good to see that you're facing in that direction. And then you might just ask, ask what areas are on the horizon here, the next stages or steps of purifying, whether it's outward behavior, as most of us still have some work to do, or inward ways that you talk to yourself, or ways that your thoughts go, or habits of reaction. What's the next tip of the iceberg for you? And in that, not to feel discouraged, but to feel excited. Ah, 
a new place to awaken. And as the Buddha talked about, the key is to incline the mind and the heart in that direction. Without putting a timetable on it, making it a race, but just seeing this is where I want to go. This is how I can truly embody these teachings that somehow speak to me. As one of Goethe's couplets says, whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, magic, and power in it. So, we have a few minutes before we end. Any comments, questions, anything comes up from the talk? <clears throat> I do hope you see your, your practice in that bigger picture and have it inspire you. <clears throat> That's the point. So we'll close with a loving kindness and dedication. I just want to put in, oh, to the same thing, to Thomas struggling with addiction and Sam who is struggling with addictions. Hmm. Two different handwriting. Just, And you might for a moment, think of all the people in this world who are struggling with addiction, who are struggling with the wanting mind. And you might have your own form of it, whether it's your device or your... um, habits, the second noble truth, the cause of suffering is attachment, and just have compassion for yourself and everyone in that same predicament. And then send some kind thoughts to yourself. That would bring you here on a Thursday night and appreciate something inside that you can't ignore. And wish yourself well. May I keep awakening to the goodness inside and the wisdom and the kindness. May I have patience and courage and determination to keep facing in the right direction. May I know true happiness and well-being and share my love well.
and then to extend it out, including everyone here in this room, and from this room, extending out good wishes to everyone near and far in Berkeley, in the Bay Area, throughout this state and country that needs our caring so much, and all over the world, to all beings and this planet, may all know true happiness and peace. And may our coming here together, any good that comes from that, ripple out and be shared for the benefit of all. Thank you very much for your kind attention. Have a great week. See you next week if you come. Safe travels. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.